Welcome to Politic. Thank you so much for coming. Would you all please share your name, where you're from, and what do you do there? Hello, my name is Yasmin Dini. I am from the Peel Girls Empowerment Movement, also known as Peel Gems, and I am the Director of Programs and Initiatives. So unfortunately, the common problem for women is the wage gap. Since 1988, the wage gap for women has been reduced by 5.5%. As of 2018, women earn on average 13% less than men. What factors continue to block the path for equal pay? These numbers are startling, and some of the factors that continue to block the path for equal pay include, but are not limited to, systemic discrimination against women. Beginning in the early childhood years, women are blocked from pursuing some of today's most high-paying jobs, such as STEM careers, which stands for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics careers, or business careers, for example. Uh, This transition continues in bias in hiring policies and implicit bias with regards to the stereotyping of the capabilities of women and their behaviors. This makes it more difficult for them to attain positions, but also to move up the ladder. This is further entrenched in other biases such as racism. As we know, the gender wage gap is further stratified by race, meaning women can be even further marginalized compared to their male counterparts. Furthermore, workplace policies in many cases are not conducive to the life circumstances of many, such as family leave policies or child care. These barriers compound to allow the dream of equal pay to be more difficult to achieve. Gender-based violence is an unfortunate reality for women. Indigenous women have been especially vulnerable as reported in the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry. How has the inquiry report influenced women advocacy in Canada? The report has made an impact on women's advocacy by shining a light on the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. The information is now readily accessible for all individuals to read and provides an avenue for groups or organizations to learn and be inclusive in their advocacy efforts. What's really notable about this national inquiry is that um, it helped raise awareness and understanding about the racist and sexist attitudes and beliefs that are the foundation of the violence against Indigenous women in Canada. It really put to the forefront of a lot of people's attention that this violence is so this violence is so pervasive from coast to coast Um, it also shows how there is an intergenerational impact of the many structures um, such as colonialism such as the residential school system um, that still impacts us today and it also showed a shone a light on um, the families of the victims who we often do not hear about, but we were able to hear the impact um, it's had on them, on their mental health, on um, on just every aspect of their lives. And it also showed how uh, the Canadian government has been complicit, really, 
um, in ignoring the cries for help from the indigenous community in um, perpetuating systems of violence. Um, And so for women's advocacy, I think for a lot of folks, it meant including this issue as a of utmost prioritization and ensuring that um, effective change is made. So a lot of women's advocacy groups you see uh, have been including campaigns for missing and, min- missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And I think that has been really impactful because a lot of people were not aware. And the more people that are aware, the more pressure it puts on the government to make amends um, and to really address this issue properly. And it's just part of the larger work that needs to be done on truth and reconciliation here in Canada. Trans inclusion is also a reoccurring discussion in feminist movements and is the source for some debate. How do you think a movement that focuses on the elimination of oppression can itself effectively remain anti-oppressive? The movement can remain anti-oppressive by incorporating anti-oppressive practice into its mandate. So by ensuring that it's in the mandate and it flows through the mission and values of an organization or a movement, it really ensures that anti-oppressive practice informs every single decision um, that is made by that organization or those individuals. Um, One of those key points is ensuring that training is given to every single individual who has decision-making capacity or uh, responsibilities to ensure that um, their decisions are informed in an anti-oppressive way. Um, Also ensuring that the people that are recruited to have leadership um, of an organization or a movement are people from diverse backgrounds so that diverse perspectives are are always kept in mind and are always prioritized and maintaining a relationship with those who you wish to serve but aren't necessarily part of your leadership base so for example a lot of um, women's rights movements will also hope to include or in some way um, affect change for the global south if they're housed in the global north and ensuring that individuals from the global south are, are part of those discussions, are part of your leadership um, to ensure that everything that they need and everything that they want are informed. Uh, and just to go more into anti-oppressive practices, it just really means being aware um, of all the structures that are in place that really inform the way that we make decisions. So understanding how colonialism, how white supremacy, how capitalism have a really big effect on uh, women's rights and how they're shaped and how they've been shaped in the past. Um, And being able to make decisions from a place that acknowledges that we do not wish to further marginalize people. We don't want to entrench them in these uh, harmful practices, but we really want to humanize um, and take into account the evidence that shows that anti-oppressive practices can really ensure that um, 
these oppressive attitudes do not inform the the uh, policies or practices that we partake in. The Department of Women and Gender Equality in Canada has a long history of pioneering initiatives surrounding the status of women. However, during the Harper government, it experienced a multitude of cuts and charges. How have these changes impacted women in Canada? The changes that were implemented by the Harper government have had devastating impacts on women here in Canada. If you look at just the closures of the multiple offices across the nation, um, that really limited the grassroots capabilities and the engagement capacity of the department. But when you look at the full breadth of the austerity measures that the Harper government put in place, you see that um, this affected women's shelters, people who were advocating for women's health, um, equality, security, even um, folks who were advocating for legal challenges to promote women's rights um, using the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And so when you, when you cut funding for organizations such as shelters or child care services or other, uh, other supports for women, uh, they're more likely to, to get, take a pay cut to be in precarious living situations, to be in precarious job situations, to stay in abusive relationships. And all of this just means that they're more likely to fall further into poverty or just stay in cycles of poverty. And so um, the lack of protection for the gender wage gap, um, this just means that women are going to continue to be in positions where they don't have decision-making power when they're not earning the wages that they need to be earning um, or that they deserve to be earning. Um, but it also has an impact on our communities when we know that children who are living in poor households are more likely to have physical and mental health issues. Um, less likely to develop knowledge and skills or overall do well worse in school. So there's a number of impacts that these have had and they are all very detrimental to the fulfillment of women's human rights. In particular, um, the funding cuts to uh, Indigenous services and to services that help a low socioeconomic or women of color also means that um, we are putting, we are really entrenching them in cycles of poverty and discrimination and all of these harmful practices that currently occur because we're not giving them the support that they deserve. And so these, uh, these sort of austerity measures, um, should, should be overturned, should like funding should be returned. There's a lot of things that need to be changed because the legacy will continue for years and years to come. Canada recently upgraded its maternity leave benefits to include sharing weeks between parents. This means that combined families can receive up to 83% of their earnings. Do you think these changes have improved the financial impact of childbirth on women? I think this change has improved the financial impact of childbirth on women. This is as when you look at the stats from before the change, you can see that a lot of women had not taken the full term that they 
could have been allocated to because they couldn't afford to lose more wages or salary, or even some folks felt that they were at risk of losing their job. And so we know the impact of uh, childbirth is very heavy and the burden lies uh, typically on uh, the, the woman. And so allowing for folks to share between the two parents and get up to 83% of their salary allows for that impact to be lessened and allows for one's quality of life, of course, to be improved as they have more time to bond with their child, but also not feel the burden of um, their wages being cut significantly. So it, overall, it's a great it's a great step, but there is changes that need to be made because um, we're not there yet at 100% uh, reimbursement and so countries like Sweden or Norway have been able to do so and I think moving in that direction would even would afford even greater quality of life for individuals. Although abortion is a controversial topic for some Canadians it is an important piece of women's health. There have been attempts to pass abortion law but they have not been passed. Is treating abortion like any medical procedure affecting women's health and the right to choose? Abortion is a fundamental human right and is a sensitive topic and should be treated as such. Access to legal abortions can have a positive effect on one's quality of life and prevents morbidity and mortality due to unsafe abortions. Treating it as a simple medical procedure does a disservice as abortion is a complex topic with support and counseling needed. The issue of abortion can look different depending on the individual and their circumstances. So what's most important is allowing for diverse voices to engage in the discussion surrounding the topic because as it stands today in Canada, it is legal, but the access is centralized to urban regions, meaning entire groups of people, such as Indigenous people living on reserve, are effectively excluded from access. So protecting the bodily autonomy of individuals means ensuring that this right is protected and fulfilled for all in need. While women's rights have regularly been challenged and questioned due to the patriarchal structure of the society, what are some recent changes you have been seeing that improve the quality of life for women in Canada and around the world? In recent years, there has been a number of changes that have positively impacted women's quality of life here in Canada and across the world. I think one of the most uh, notable has been the decriminalization of abortion in countries like Chile and Ireland, which of course will have a positive impact on women as they uh, regain decision-making power and bodily autonomy to plan um, their pregnancies to end unwanted pregnancies or unsafe um, uh, abortion. So this has been a tremendous change. Another thing has been um, the ability for women to drive in Saudi Arabia, which will, of course, allow them to be more independent um, 
which is just a transformational change for what from what they were experiencing. Likewise, the election of women to notable positions in government, such as prime ministers of countries, um, such as Jacinda Ardern in, in New Zealand, or, or in Malaysia, the president of Malaysia, uh, this has been transformational. Uh, here in Canada, we saw Justin Trudeau do 50% gender parity um, to ensure that women's perspectives will be included in his cabinet and this is really important to ensure that women's rights issues are always um, prioritized and of the utmost importance. One other I think notable change that has improved the quality of life for women has been just the um, the Me Too movement which allowed for discussions around sexual assault and sexual harassment to become uh, really prioritized and at the forefront of a lot of um, discussions and this meant that people uh, especially very powerful people were being held accountable for the harm that they have done and to ensure that just the world would be a bit more safer for women and uh, all people really um, but that accountability piece would definitely include Im- improve sorry the quality of life for women so that they're not being harassed or assaulted in their places of work in their homes in public um just in all facets of their lives if they can have peace of mind that people will be held accountable and that these won't be societal uh, norms no longer women's movements in north america have a similar struggle as does the climate change movement in regards to the lack of representation for women of color and marginalized groups. What are some steps the movement has taken to address this issue? Some steps the movement has taken to address the issue has included diversifying the leadership of major movements. Uh, For example, the Women's March that occurred in Washington, D.C. had a very diverse uh, leadership body. And this ensured that women's perspectives from from intersecting backgrounds and the intersecting barriers that they had were represented when the speeches were being made, when the follow-up activities were occurring. And I think what's really encouraging is that a lot of grassroots organizations, a lot of nonprofits, a lot of... um, just organizations that focus on women's rights issues have undertaken training and capacity building activities to ensure that diversity, equity, and inclusion are part of their mandate. Um, So making it part of your mandate, making it part of your mission um, is one thing that's very encouraging to see that a lot of organizations are doing, but also following that up with training activities. This ensured that um, the entire leadership and all the in- individuals who partake in the initiatives have this sort of anti-oppressive lens um, or are more um, exposed to the different perspectives that we need them to be exposed to if we want to have really robust uh, you know, measures in place for activities or for campaigns or for funding opportunities, that sort of thing. Um, and so 
um, making it a part of their mandate has been a very, very encouraging uh, step that we've seen the movement take, but also um, ensuring that uh, the individuals that interact with uh, the organization, such as partnerships, have been diverse partnerships. They have been partnerships that have been willing to provide funding um, to actually build capacity within organizations. And this is just one of the key things that we need for active allyship. From Greta Thunberg to Malaha Yousafzai and Adam Peetler, young women have started to lead major developments, including their perspective in advocacy. As we step into this new decade, what do you think will be the next steps for women's rights movements in the future? I am so encouraged by the work of Autumn, Malala, and Greta, and it is precisely these sort of major movements that we need uh, to really move forward and make a difference in women's rights issues. I think the next steps for the women's rights movement in the future would be these sort of intersectional global women's rights issues that we have. I think the most pressing of all is climate change and uh, environmentalism, uh, global warming, what we're facing. And so we know that the issues of global warming disproportionately affect women, especially women from low um socioeconomic statuses and women who live in the global south and so the women's rights movement really need to prioritize the voices of women in those nations but also uh, look towards providing capacity building opportunities funding most importantly uh, for individuals there as well as making sure that the women's rights movements are very intersectional but also anti-oppressive Um, We know that we've had major, major success in mobilizing forces um, for women's rights issues in the West, for example, in Canada, in Toronto, I can think of the women's rights march, the women's march. Um, However, we need to make sure that the individuals who are speaking on behalf of women's rights or who are spearheading these campaigns um, are keep are from a representative of the diverse backgrounds that women come from. We need to have powerful trans women voices. We need to have women of color. We need to have indigenous women, black women, uh, and we need to have their representation not just be tokenized, but also um, make sure that they have this decision making power to ensure that it's anti oppressive. That um, that the work that they're doing really uh, helps people on the ground. And so I think those are the next steps for the women's rights movement in the future. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before we end, we would like to ask you to share a little bit about where our listeners can find more about your organizations and stay up to date on your upcoming projects. Thank you for having us. Listeners can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Peel Gems at P-E-E-L-G-E-M-S or on our brand new website, www.peelgems.com.